LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com When Captain America throws his mighty shield All those who chose to oppose his shield must yield If he's led to a fight and a duel is due Then the red and the white and the blue will come through When Captain America throws his mission, a lone plane flies over a wild, uncharted South American jungle. You've been waiting for him. Asking for him. Now he's here. Who are you? My name is Bond. James Bond. He's back. In a new Bond Spectacular. Kill him! Welcome to hell, Blofeld. He's back. Good evening. Hey, what the hell is this? Hey, listen, you can't do this to me. I've got friends in this town. Outrageous, fun-making thrills. I didn't know there was a pool down there. And they're back. Some rare facets of female bondage. 007 style. Good evening, 007. Do you believe in evil? That's an idea. Do you believe in the power of darkness? That's a superstition. Now, there you are wrong. The power of darkness is more than just a superstition. It is a living force which can be tapped at any given moment of the night. Why? On one night of one year, <coughs> should these people live in mortal fear? The goat of Bendis. The devil himself. Christopher Lee as de Richelieu, who knows he must fight the devil's power to the death. Oh, my God. Don't look at the eyes, Rex. Eyes. Eyes. Once filled with love, are consumed with fear. For Tanith is now promised to the devil. Listen carefully to what I say. This is Makata, the devil's chief disciple. Your will is leaving you, slipping away. Hello, Jay. Uh, welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. Back with us today, part two of two, I believe, on uh, uh, talking about your book, Esoteric Hollywood, and a lot of other related things. Thanks, Greg. Uh, yeah, I had a good good time talking to you last week, and uh, hopefully we can up the ante and get get, get even crazier. Oh well, I think that should be a that should be a shoe in. That should be okay. Last thing I mentioned uh, last time was Michael Crichton. That just came up randomly in the conversation. Some people may not know, but he's the mind behind the ideas uh, in some of the some of the biggest movies actually in history. The first one I think of his that was made into a movie was actually the Andromeda Strain. Definitely, I think a really smart film. Not an easy thing to watch at all for many people because it's about the process of science. 
you know, do, doing science. So although it's a thriller, it's it's not exactly fast-paced, shall we say. Sphere is another one of his. West mm-hmm. Westworld, of course, uh, which we talked about somewhat last week. Jurassic Park might be his biggest success. And another favourite one of mine, The 13th Warriors, his story... Although John McTiernan, the, the diehard guy, he directed that. But as I understand it, the version that got released in the cinema was kind of butchered. So I don't know if you've ever, you know, read anything about Michael Crichton. I know he's done an autobiography, but I mentioned him in the context of being a very switched on guy, an insider. The reason he sprung to mind, I think, is because we talked last time about hidden agendas and secret messages and subtexts in movies or, yep. and actually just overt propaganda in movies. And you mentioned then how some good messages can come through films, particularly people who know what they're doing, you know, directors and producers and writers and even actors sometimes who are switched on can inject these things into movies. And for me, I think some of his stuff works on two levels. I think there could be a lot of stuff in there. Perhaps directors have got in that's sending messages to us. But if you, particularly if you read his autobiography, this is a guy that really had, was really clued up about how the world works. And, uh, and, I, and I didn't even realize the guy's dead. That shows you the last. Well, he died. Yeah, he was very healthy, and he died relatively. Yeah, I mean, not, he's not young, young, but uh, he died younger than I think people expected him to to pass away. He died in, I guess, two thousand eight. And yeah, I did. Uh, I have read uh, up on his life and his biography because, like you said, I mean, he's been pretty influential in in the land of movies. And then I remember watching Andromeda strain and I think he, there's even a few movies that he actually directed. So he didn't just write, but he also directed at times. Uh, there's that weird one with Tom Selleck too, that it's not that great of a movie, but it's funny because it has uh, Gene Simmons as a bad guy. The one from, uh, from the eighties with the little, uh, robot spider drones that, the, the I mean, it has some interesting predictive programming elements is what I'm trying to say. Like, it's a future sort of dystopia where everybody's, uh, everything's run by AI and uh, Runaway. That's it. Did you ever see Runaway? Yeah, I did, but I don't remember much about it. I just remember thinking that uh, Gene Simmons couldn't really act. It's a bad movie. It's it's almost B-movie, but it is one of those ones that he directed and, and uh, it's his story. But, but yeah, what, what's interesting is that he did seem to know a lot about the interplay between the tech realm and humanity in that, in that predictive programming sense. And so you get all the stuff with, you know, biotech and genetic engineering and all that with Jurassic Park and Andromeda strain. And then you've got, there was another one I think he did that was very, that was wild that came out right before he died called uh, prey. Are you familiar with that one where they do all this testing on the monkeys yeah, that, uh, that might be the last one that came out before his death. Yeah, I think so, yeah. Um, yeah, 2002 was Prey. So, yeah, I think that, again, I can't prove, or I don't have any evidence for it, like a assassination plot, but you never know. I mean, you know, this is, sometimes we, we wonder, did people go too far? But, you know, all of these films absolutely have some some degree, some level for the most part of of kind of predictive programming or maybe even esoteric elements. Yeah, with with conspiracies about in this case with people being bumped off, and we're not saying by the way this happened to him, we don't know, but it's become so rubbish in recent times. You know, there's been so many glaring examples where people are saying, you know, conspiracy theory that, that this didn't actually happen. You know, stuff that demonstrably happened in the world people say oh it was a psyop it didn't really happen so even though people are lapping up conspiracy theories like never before it's also mm-hmm. got to the, it's also got to the point now where when something is 
actually provable as a result of a conspiracy, people will still deny it. One of the responses to part one, the, the show we did last week, was for someone, I mentioned The French Connection is one of my favourite films, and somebody came back and said, there's chemtrails in The French Connection. Um, I saw that. Yeah, and I, I was like, really? You know, I'm not saying there isn't, but I didn't notice. So, uh, and then they went on basically to say, there's chemtrails in virtually every movie. What function would that perform? Guess so yeah. if, we, if we look up at the sky and we see crisscrossing contrails or chemtrails, whatever they happen to be, that we will think, oh, that's normal, you know, or that's okay. So, um, do you know what I mean? So I don't know if you come across this when you're writing about movies and if you touch upon perhaps nefarious underhand dealings uh, being spoken about or that people are, or there's a certain cadre of people who are instantly dismissive of it, you know? Uh, do you mean in terms of people being knocked off, like star killers, star whackers, that kind of stuff? Or what do you mean? Well, I just mean that people responding to some of your writing, if you get into some of those areas, that they respond with like, ah, oh, no, you're nuts, man. You know, without even looking oh, into absolutely. it themselves. Yeah, yeah. totally. I mean, every day. <laughs> uh, you know, because I try to put up some some kind of content uh, almost on a daily basis, if not every day, then every other day. Um, so, yeah, there, there's I get a lot of, not not a lot, but it was a lot. I got a lot more back when, um, maybe when I was starting to do this kind of stuff six, seven years ago, I would get a lot more hate mail and a lot more uh, friction and opposition from, from readers. But now it's, you know, I guess those, a lot of those people just kind of faded away. And also a lot more people have, I guess, become clued into stuff because there've been so many big scale stories that kind of back up the conspiracy theory, you know, things like WikiLeaks and vault seven and all that. And I'm not trying to debate the veracity of who all is behind WikiLeaks or Snowden or any of that. I don't have any problem doubting those things in terms of who or what they might serve in a big picture. But regardless, the, the content of what we were told by these characters like Snowden or in the recent WikiLeaks, that's all true. Right. And the, the Podesta emails and all this kind of stuff. Um, you know, if you look into those things, it really just goes to back up everything that we in the conspiracy world have talked about for so long in so many areas, especially the tech surveillance area. You know, that the, the recent Vault 7 stuff really confirms all of that. And that's precisely what you had in so many of these movies, especially the sci fi movies that we're talking, you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago. They were telling us about the the phase of the age of transition that we would enter into where everything would be dominated by some kind of centralized AI grid. And, you know, you mentioned Logan's run. That's what we see in Logan's run. That's what we see in uh, Zardoz. We have this giant supercomputer that's supposed to kind of be the brains of the, of the city or this giant macrocosm giant man, uh, Adam Cadmon city or something like this. That's run by some big supercomputer. And you had all these sci-fi shows and books and novels, you know, that were telling us this decades and decades ago, um, you know, as to how, how much that was implanted by the Pentagon, it's always difficult to say, but you know, I think as we were talking about last time with, uh, like Heinlein, there's definitely in many of these cases, a direct connect between, uh, in the U S for example, the the deep state military industrial complex and a lot of these characters. Now that's not to say that all these characters liked it or thought that the deep state was good. I mean, I don't get the impression from Philip K. Dick that he liked all the dystopian stuff that he wrote about. But uh, as I understand from people who have researched him and, and written books on his life, 
uh, he was, you know, in the in the circles of Silicon Valley people. So he was being told back in the 60s and 70s what the Pentagon was going to do in building that region up. And by the way, I, I don't usually make a big distinction between the public uh, idea of government and the Pentagon and the military industrial complex and this so-called uh, private sphere of competitive free market businesses like Google and Facebook and NQTEL and all that. I don't really think there's that big of a, a distinction because as we know, the revolving door phenomenon, a lot of the people uh, who go from Google go to government and then go to government to Google, right? I mean, these things are kind of interchangeable revolving doors. And uh, so I, I see the this whole skeletal structure maybe behind what's out there in Silicon Valley. And I was actually there about six months ago. I got to see all these tech. I didn't tour the tech companies. I'm just saying I was kind of touring California, the state, because I hadn't been out there in a long time. But you see this, you know, it's just, there's just like this giant grid and you, and you wonder like what's underground here. Right. And then you start to realize that, you know, like you mentioned Dave uh, McGowan's book and my dad was in the military. He was stationed in, uh, san diego back in the 80s and there's all these giant bases in san diego some of them are actually like secret there's islands with secret military naval bases and then you start to realize this whole state is a giant military industrial complex state so it's not accidental that the silicon valley that's the heart of this of the the whole tech transhumanist type grid is out in you know california <laughs> up near uh palo alto and all that so I don't think that that's accidental. I think that the whole state of California, you know, is this kind of test bed for where they, where they take things. At least in the U.S., it's kind of a, a, you know, 20 year ahead of time type thing where what you see happening in California eventually filters out to the rest of the country. Maybe New York as well. Kind of the, the two edges of, <laughs> of the United States then kind of just spew, they, they vomit their poison in inwards towards the middle of the, of the country. Um, but all that to say that, you know, we mentioned Michael Crichton and we mentioned predictive programming and, and all the haters. Uh, there's not as many of those haters anymore. They're, there's, they're dwindling away because so much of this stuff is just so in your face. Right? It's, it's like, how do you, I mean, people can do it. They, they, people are very skilled at cognitive dissonance and, and, uh, convincing themselves to believe bullshit. Uh, but, but uh, after a while, it's like, you know, you, you really can't deny the fact that every single day there's some giant news story that comes out, even in the mainstream media, which is controlled, that uh, tells you that we're being put into this giant AI grid that's coming. I worked with David Icke for a year, not often directly one-on-one -on -one with him, but uh, mostly with his son. We made a, a music show together, but um, mm -hmm. I, I got to talk to him many times, just one-on-one uh, -on -one in private sort of thing. And so I got to find out. Basically, you know, the guy isn't crazy, okay, let's just say that up front. Don't, you don't have to buy into everything he's saying. But the reason I mention this is because um, he still does his gargantuan presentations, which he does usually at Wembley Arena in London, and thousands of people turn up for those. But to be honest with you, I looked at the last one he did, and it was not just because I'm familiar with it, but it was almost passe. The mainstream TV here in the UK actually made a documentary a few years ago called David Icke, Was He Right?, and it addressed all of the stuff that he's been talking about for years that is palpably happening. It is there right, right in right. front of us, you know, and still you talk about cognitive dissonance. There's still people who 
will, because, well, I'm just using David Icke as an example because he's so well known, uh, certainly this side of the pond, but beca- mm-hmm. because he says it, you know, he can say, you know, the sky is blue, or at least the sky appears to be blue, and people say, no, 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 because David mm-hmm. Icke said it. <laughs> so it can it can depend on who's saying what, if you see what I mean, right. in, what, in what form the information is presented, what channels it comes to us through. And I think a lot of people have a tendency to dismiss, or had certainly anyway, to dismiss fiction. You know, it's a work of fiction, so it doesn't matter if there's facts in it, it's a work of fiction, ergo, it's false. Well, this is the old thing with with British intelligence that you would see where you go back to, you know, around the turn of the century. And because I think a lot of the, the writers uh, couldn't put their, like William Somerset Maugham or uh, Joseph Conrad or any of these, I mean, Conrad, I don't think he was intelligence, but any of these other characters, even Orwell, who, you know, had periods where they worked with intelligence agencies, they would figure out a lot of this stuff. They'd learn a lot of this stuff, put the pieces together, be told stuff, overhear stuff, whatever. And but they couldn't talk about it because of various legalities and official secrets acts and all this kind of stuff. So, you know, the classic way to get around that is to write it into fiction. So I I tend to think that predictive programming really just sort of arises out of the the whole idea of spy fiction. Um, I mean, certainly you could probably go back further in fictional accounts. And I mean, if you wanted to, you could probably go all the way back to like the. Bhagavad Gita or these kinds of uh, Mahabharata, these different ancient Hindu texts that even talk about, you know, like advanced technology and, and gods flying around and zapping each other with <laughs> lasers and shit. But uh, so I guess in a way, you know, the, the ancient myths and the ideas of uh, crossbreeding and, and, and basically what's done in, you know, biotech and, and uh, GMO engineering and all that kind of stuff you could argue i guess that that's all based in the principles of ancient mythology but if we set that aside more modern examples you know you've got mary shelley frankenstein that you have these alchemical notions there you've got the myths of the golem i I, i've argued for a while that you could you could kind of see those as uh predictive programming i guess in a way but moving up into the 20th century with the rise of the, the novel, so to speak, uh, and the, the detective novel, uh, you know, with, uh, Conan Doyle and things like that. You have this burgeoning of spy fiction. And this is something that I've covered uh, quite a bit, which in my research, I think was really kind of uh, fostered by the establishment. Uh, and there's actually academic sources to back that up that the, that the, the system even wanted there to be a lot of this um, this idea of spy fiction because it would kind of eventually over time make the notion of surveillance and giant government bureaucracies of, of spies everywhere and these networks of informants and all that, so, which has been going on forever. I've realized that I'm not I'm not naive, but I'm saying that the the, the popular culture tradition of spy fiction is, I think, directly connected to panopticism. Right, which is the older Jeremy Bentham uh, philosophy of uh, total surveillance. Uh, this this kind of coalesces with the spy fiction that you get from a lot of these writers, uh, and it conditions the public over time to think, "Oh, actually, all of these violations of you know <laughs> my privacy or whatever, it's all actually kind of sexy and cool because you know you've got all these." Uh, uh, dashing characters trotting the globe and you know banging all these hot babes and 
getting all the info and saving Western civilization or the, what, you know, all this, this, the nonsense around it. And it, and it builds up a whole culture to where, Oh, uh, you know, we've got to have the CCTV cameras every on every corner, everywhere, uh, because of all the terrorists, because of all the threats, all the dangers. And this is what all the, all the spy fiction does is just prop all that crap up. Right. I mean, and that's the real indoctrination, not the, um, as I've said so many times, not so much the news. I mean, the news matters. It is an angle of, of psyops. It's very important, but way more people are going to go see James Bond. Way more people are going to watch Jason Bourne than are going to watch, you know, boring Alan Partridge news presenter. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Totally. I mean, I remember saying I did an interview with a guy, New York journalist, uh, Harvey Maloch, I think is how he pronounces his name, but he, he wrote a book called Against Security, arguing that a lot of what he called security theater is there just to, in a situation where nothing can be done, just to be se- people to be seen to be doing something, if you see what I mean. And I said, if you had told me in the 1980s that we would be going through the BS that we go through in order to get onto a plane these days, I would have yeah. said, no, 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 people are not, that's not going to fly. I would have said, people are not going to be taking off their belts and their shoes. You know, they'll just won't do it. They'll just think, look, man, are we being sent into Belson here or something? You know, do you want our gold teeth as well? You know, it's just, that's not going to happen. And it has. And as much as I try to be in a Zen place when I'm going through an airport, you see a lot of people getting very agitated, being treated like cattle. And actually, it was in New York, funny enough, uh, flew into, flew into New Jersey, into JFK. I think that's the one that's in New Jersey. On the way back out again, it was a very unpleasant experience, I will add. On the way out again, I remember just for some reason I was drawn to this woman and all she was doing was walk, stood in a queue, a very long snaking queue waiting to go through security. And I just noticed her and she was, she had been crying and she was almost in tears again. And I, she just looked broken. And I thought, wow, you could stick her in Schindler's List as, you know, one of the death camp inmates and it'd be like, just right there, that's what she was behaving like. And I thought she's just broken and that's people being, for all the people who are getting indignant about the humili- mm-hmm. the humiliation of the security, uh, there's 10 people who are just t- totally submissive to it. Yeah. And I think that was the whole big role of fiction over, the, over many decades was to put people into that frame of mind because, you know, we know that the mind stores these ideas over time and, places them in the subconscious, even if they're not the stories that we watch. I'm saying all these movies, you know, they kind of get thrown down the the pit of our subconscious and they just kind of mill about down there and we don't even recognize it. But over time we've watched so many of these films and read so many of these stories, which again, they may be enlightening. I'm not saying you can't enjoy lit. I do. Uh, But at the same time, they kind of, I think, condition us you know the, I, guess, I guess that's cliche but it reminds me of uh, there's a book that kind of influenced my book uh by a guy named frederick hits and i think he's like a cia professor or something like that he had some role along those lines but he wrote a book called the great game the myths and reality of espionage and the whole thing is just about spy fiction and the history of spy fiction and he talks about these different characters uh like i said William Somerset Maugham was like, he was like the first one to write about giant spy bureaucracies <laughs> rising out of the wartime. So uh, if you listen to my tragedy and hope talks that I did, you'll know that I tend to support Quigley's analysis that world war one and world war two were basically engineered by the bankers. And one of the things that the bankers preferred was to have 
giant spy bureaucracies. And uh, Mahim writes about this in Ashenden, his novel. And then you go to Graham Greene, and Graham Greene talks about he talks about the exact same stuff. He talks about how the uh, he he liked the idea of the American CIA, but but that they weren't tough enough on terror and all this nonsense. So, I mean, these, these, once you understand, by the way, that these spy people, spy agencies, espionage, all this stuff, that it's not really any different than the, than the techniques that local police do in entrapment situations. <laughs> mm. it, it kind of loses its luster <laughs> and this, the sex, the sexiness of it. Cause you realize, oh, this is actually just, you know, entrapping shitty people by other shitty people who've probably been entrapped by the government. You see what I'm saying? It, all the, all the sexiness of it kind of loses its luster when you realize that, you know, it's not, uh, George Clooney seducing, uh, Mila Jovovich. It's like, you know, a, 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 some whore somewhere <laughs> being, yeah, I mean, being, you, you, yeah, being, I, being rounded up by some big old fat cop. You know what I mean? I don't know if I mentioned it last time, but when I was at university uh, many years ago, I met a young guy who can only have been a couple of years older than me at the time, so he's probably about 25 or something, and he worked at GCHQ, which is the big spook, mm-hmm. spook central here in England. And, like um, an essay over there, right? Yeah, yeah, that type of thing. And obviously the surveillance technology was much more limited back then, but the, the reason I mention it is because he said it was actually really boring. He was looking to get out of it, but it was quite a well-paid job, and he said they're, yeah. they're paying us well partly to buy our complicity, to buy our silence, because we have to sign the Official Secrets Act and all of that. But he mm-hmm. said, actually, it's not very exciting work. And he honestly thought it was going to be a bit more dramatic. Uh, he said, no, I didn't necessarily think it was going to be James Bond, but, you know, I thought it would be a bit more action than this. And this is one of the things that I think the Bourne films actually had quite a profound effect directly or indirectly on the Bond films that came after. You look at something mm-hmm. like Casino Royale, the James Bond film, quite a different Bond there. It's the toughest Bond that we've seen. And the reason I mentioned Bourne in this context is because a lot of what you see the spooks doing in that is just the lower level ones are just sat at computer screens in rows. They might as well be at a call center somewhere, you know, and it actually looks like really dull work. That's the funny part that Le Carre puts in his novels is that it's not sexy. It's actually pretty boring. And he's just this guy who's, you know, worried about his wife cheating on him. Yeah, in fact, <laughs> you know what I mean? That's a, that's more realistic, obviously. But but the reason I was saying all that is just that it kind of promotes this idea of of voyeurism in the pop culture, and I think that this is something that's a, a persistent theme in Hitchcock is his obsession with voyeurism, and he happens to make all these spy espionage based story films, you know, tons of them, and it really just kind of propagates the the idea of of the fetish of voyeurism for the general public. And then you've got Facebook and what does everybody, what all the housewives do, but sit around on Facebook all day at home and try to like basically spy on the other housewives and other, other dudes and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, guys are like creeping girls on their Facebook profile. So this is all like, you know, the spy culture, I believe is intentionally released into the public in all of these things like Twitter Facebook. These were all created by the, the spy. The internet was created by, you know, wartime military intelligence uh, communications, right? Cryptography and all this kind of stuff is what birthed the internet through the, the Pentagon and so forth and Stanford Institute and DARPA and all that. Uh, and so here you have this giant 
spy agency device uh, or, or uh, technology, this medium that's then released to the public. Well, I think it would be really naive to think that our deep state overlords released the Internet to the public because they care about everybody and they want everybody to have easy access to, <laughs> to information and to, to uh, purchase their dishwares uh, through Amazon, right? I don't think they care about that. What I do think they care about, as we've said, in the long term, is building this giant AI grid that we see in Zardoz or Logan's Run. Yeah, you get the the idea just talking about you know, who'd actually be doing this rather boring work that isn't James Bond at all. If you picture the, the, the fat loser sitting up at four o'clock in the morning, hunched over his um, computer with his bucket of fried chicken in his bucket of cola, that's probably the ideal recruit, really, for uh, doing surveillance, you know, because they're actually going to get quite quite turned on by the whole idea, you know, in the same way that... Now, I'm not trying to make a direct link here, please, you know, but in the same way that they, it's proven that, you know, pedophiles put themselves in positions, work positions, if they can, sometimes, uh, where, yeah. where they'll be around children. You know, it's no great surprise. Before I forget, if people want to see... You mentioned John LeCarrie there... Um, People want to see what might actually be more day-to-day type work for uh, an espionage worker, if we call them that way. If they look at the films, anything with Michael Caine playing Harry Palmer, and he's kind of like the antithesis of James Bond in some ways. Uh, it just in, you just watch any of the films. It just there's one film in particular. I can't remember which one it is, but it's. Really- I like Billion Dollar Brain a lot. Yeah, those are great. They're great. They're and they're kind of funny because they're anti-Bond. Yeah, there's there's one of the films where it shows him his morning routine. Him getting up in the morning and making coffee, and uh, I can't remember what he has for breakfast. It might be an omelette or something. And then he goes off and, and goes to work, and he get, arrives at the office building, and it's like, oh wow, man, this is terrible. And then he goes and sits down at his desk with one of his coworkers, and it emphasizes, you know, the kind of general dullness of it all. And uh, in contrast to Bond, yeah, we should probably talk about Bond because you've got a section where you analyze a couple of the Bond films in your book. You may have done analyses of other ones, but a couple actually show up. Uh, in the book, and you look at it, for example, people thinking that Bond is kind of like the guy that they want to be, or you know, that's a what you know the ultimate alpha male. But Bond's a right. Bond's a psychopath. He's actually quite, very unlikable, and I would not want to go drinking with Bond. If I did, I'd just be picking his brains about some of the some of the supervillains and what they were really like, so you know, type of thing. But uh, so yeah, Bond is a character, a nasty piece of work. Yeah, it's really the films that turn him into something different. Um, you know, there's a lot of literary debate and discussion over what Ian Fleming was ultimately trying to convey with the the book character. And as I'm sure you and, and probably many of the audience know, th- these novels started out just kind of as pulp, pulp fiction. They weren't really taken seriously in any kind of academic sense or literary sense. But for whatever reason, that eventually changed through the famous essay that Umberto Eco wrote about the narrative structure in Ian Fleming's Bond stories and this, not exactly sure why, but this for some reason uh, gave Fleming's writings uh, academic prowess, right? So they, they kind of took on a, a new role of the appreciation of Pulp Fiction, which again had been derided as something kind of base and vulgar uh, prior to that. Uh, but over time, I guess probably consonant with the rise of science fiction. You know, if you go back to uh, Fantastic Stories magazine or all, all these older sci-fi things, it was considered very puerile, very adolescent, goofy, silly stuff. 
that over time, you know, it's kind of like comic books, you know, they, they, they kind of rise to this new level of prominence, uh, that, you know, in our day, I don't, I don't, if you were to tell people 50 years ago that, that, uh, yeah, you had Superman and Batman as these goofy TV shows, but I don't think anybody could have imagined that, that you have these giant, that, that all of Hollywood would be propelled by Marvel stories. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that's all there is in Hollywood is these uh, giant billion dollar Marvel Avengers, Captain America blockbusters. That's like the totality now of, of what propels Hollywood. But I think that people would have found that very strange. And I think in the same way, the, um, the, the, the revolutions that you have in literature where you have the rise of these um, formerly vulgar disciplines like science fiction and, and the, the spy, the sexy spy novel, you know, the 10 cent dime store novel rising to prominence, you know, and I guess we can debate whether that's uh, engineering or not could be, I wouldn't be surprised. I think that Umberto Eco certainly had a lot of uh, questionable connections and he was, I would, I would argue nowadays, I used to be a pretty big fan of his, but I kind of see him now as kind of an agent of, of the deep state and the conspiracy, uh, if not perhaps uh, an illuminist. Uh, I, I would, I think you could probably make that argument based on what all he puts in his novels and his level of, of prominence. But he certainly was a key player in making Bond an international hit uh, in terms of the novels. And then you get uh, the rise of the movies with, you know, the, these. Uh, and if, if, if I remember from the Lychett biography of Fleming, it's, uh, Aristotle Onassis is who wants to put up the money for the first Bond film. And, uh, he, he was friends with Fleming and for whatever reason, this didn't go through, but <laughs> I've always found that fascinating that, that, uh, the original, I think he wanted to make, uh, Dr. No first. Uh, and he told Fleming, I'll pay for it. <laughs> so here you have this international villain character who kind of matches up at times to Blofeld or Emilio Largo you know, in the, in the Bond stories, but, uh, well, you talk about Willard White, don't you? The character in Diamonds Are Forever. And, uh, he's based on a, a real world character. And uh, it was interesting that that Howard film, Hughes. Howard Hughes, that's right. And that film was probably ahead of its time, but it was interesting because obviously Fleming didn't write all the Bond stories because, right. you know, there's, I think they just wanted to make more films than there were novels. But, and indeed, yeah. not, not all the novels. For example, if you, if you look at, uh, Thunderball, the, right. the movie and how that overlaps with Thunderball, the book is not not really the same thing at all. But they it, right. in later Bond movies, they were starting to even with Pierce Brosnan as Bond, they were trying to move a little bit into the so-called real world. You know, so there was no more hollowed out volcanoes. But they had, <laughs> they they had that one with Jonathan Price playing the the media, a newspaper magnet. Yes, which was I remember. Uh, that was quite an interesting wrinkle. Uh, now that obviously Bourne kind of still blew all that stuff away in terms of like bringing it into the real world. But even in right. the whole basis of Bourne is still kind of like some people look at it and go, yeah, that stuff, to, you know how he's basically a programmed undercover agent. He doesn't even know who he is or what he is. And he's uh, double crossed. And, uh, you know, still I find people saying, yeah, that's not really how the world works. But actually, if you allow that it, that it is partly how it works, it explains a lot of things that we actually see, you know, things make well, a lot more yeah. sense. I mean, you're absolutely right. So the, this idea of the super soldier, which is kind of made fun of, uh, 
if you I mentioned Marvel a minute ago, that is actually what the Marvel stories are based on. Like with the X Men, these are people who. Now, granted, I understand in the in the storyline of X Men, it's the these these people are mutants who have evolved and all this kind of stuff. But set that aside for a minute and think about X Men First Class, which is the big movie that was trying to tell the backstory. Uh, you know, with Jennifer Lawrence and, and uh, Michael Fassbender. Well, in that, they they all work for the CIA. The CIA takes in all these gifted super soldier types, right? Who who are going to uh, work for the good of humanity on all this nonsense. Um, when we look at the Avengers, we see that same tendency. And what was the character of uh, Captain America? He's literally a super soldier. That's his whole backstory is that during World War II, he's recruited as this little noodle-armed nothing thin dude, and they pump him up into this jacked you know guy who can run 100 miles an hour and you know throw trains and shit. <laughs> uh, so, so you've got all this fictionalized notion of the super soldier, which is a lot of that's baloney, but there's an element of truth in that because when you understand that, the, that there are these notions of, in the background, Mad scientist, MK Ultra guys, and if you remember in the Captain America plotline, which I do have analyses of the of the Captain America and Avenger films at Jay's analysis, you'll remember that it's the military, the Pentagon, Deep State, who are doing this, and the Winter Soldier, the bad guy, his former friend, if I recall, it's like the Soviets that start with, you know, mind experiments on him, and then uh, in the the sequel. It becomes, he gets reprogrammed by, uh, whoever the bad guys are. For, I can't keep up with all the bad guys and I'm not a big comic book fan, but, but he basically, uh, gets taken over by the bad guys and, and th- these people are super soldiers, right? So now how, how, how could any of that be real? All right. Now, if you go to, uh, which I cite several times in my book, John Marx's old book from the late seventies on MK Ultra. Which is in a way watered down and and somewhat censored, but it's still pretty phenomenal what you can gather from that book. That, that he, again, he wrote. The, I can't believe he wrote this in the seventies. And he describes in the last chapter. The last chapter is so important in that book. Uh, the connection between MK Ultra and biotech and electronic warfare. So all of the implants and the you know, Jose Delgado and Ewan Cameron, and, and I believe it was Delgado is the one who was put in Jolyon West. You know, these guys are putting, they're giving acid to elephants at the zoo. Jolyon West did this, just madmen. Uh, Delgado is putting the, the electrodes in the brain, brain of the bull. So you've got Jolyon West giving LSD to elephants. <laughs> Maybe that's where the, the, trip scene uh, in Dumbo where he's tripping out is maybe Jolly and West gave Dumbo his LSD. One of all that was just to say that you got this clear connection that John Marks makes in his book that I talk about some in my book uh, where the, the MKUltra program morphs into DARPA and the implanting of electrodes. Now, what is all that? That's transhumanism. That's the modification, the biometrics, all of that. The soldiers taking on these these new roles of kind of like cyborg type type characters and at that point I'm, i know this sounds ridiculous but you can even go to like these dumbass G- uh, jean-claude van damme movies right like uh 
Universal Soldier or Dolph Lundgren or, or Time Cop, where they're literally super soldiers. You know what I mean? So you've got all of this stuff in these fiction stories that, again, even something as ridiculous as Kurt Russell in that super soldier movie, I forget the name of it's it. Called, it's it's total, just called Soldier. Soldier, yeah, that's a total bomb. But even in these goofy, dumb ones, these B-movies, you've got this kernel of truth that, yes, all of that MKUltra stuff morphed into bio-warfare at Fort Detrick, it was called MK Search, and it morphed into uh, DARPA and transhumanist super soldiers, quite literally. Getting back into David Icke territory, you talking about MK Ultra reminds me of another big connection here, uh, which is how much the occult tends to uh, overlap here, and also you know you get that coming into uh, you know the movies, you know into Hollywood, which is what we're talking about. And I'm sure I watched a TV interview many years ago with a guy called Michael Aquino, I think he pronounced it, and I think he led a break-off organization right. to rival the Church of Satan, which is was right. um, Anton LaVey's thing. So I think it was Michael Aquino. I'm sure I read his name in connection with MKUltra, and it kind of, you kind of initially you go, hey, what? but that makes complete sense. And I know we talked about Eyes Wide Shut last time, or at least we mentioned it, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, in, in the context of all of this, and that's a, basically you, you address this occult thing, don't you, uh, in your book as well, no doubt in many of your other uh, written pieces. I do, because uh, in the case of Aquino, he he has a book on black magic and he argues that that this that people who do psyops and people who do black magic are kind of in the same boat, because really what they're wanting to do is alter the perception of the the, the target enemy or audience or whatever right so if you're if you're david blaine or david copperfield you're up there on the stage and you want to convey a a ruse right you want to distract the people from what's really going on and you want to get them to believe something that's they know isn't true but you know everybody going into these theater we kind of suspend our disbelief uh, which is the same principle behind movies you sit in the theater and just you suspend your uh, cognitive rational faculties to imbibe the arts. Uh, and so Aquino argues that this is a, really the same thing that, that a kind of a psyops dude, you know, in the military is doing. And that's precisely what he did was a you know high level army psyops guy. But what uh, I think often gets forgotten in relationship to all of the fantastical tales and, and I'm not saying they're true or false and I'm not like a big historian of Michael Aquino. I've just looked at, the one book that he wrote and his um, essay, his PSYOPs essay, which nobody ever seems to remember. I think the PSYOPs essay is the most important thing because here you have this high-level guy who's into black magic uh, in the military. And he writes this essay uh, from Psy- from mind- Psy War to Mind War, from Mind War to Psy War, I forget the exact title. But what's most relevant in that, that essay that he wrote with other military dudes uh, is the last section in the last few footnotes where he talks about you mentioned earlier atmospheric engineering chemtrails he talks about that in in that famous essay he he talks about uh, electronic and mk ultra type technology to be used in uh, emf type warfare is what he talks about in that in that uh, famous essay uh so Again, now we're back to MKUltra. So if you want to make a direct connection, well, there's this actual paper that makes the direct connection to 
uh, EMF warfare, which, by the way, that's directly connected to, you know, in, implantable chips and microbe, uh, um, what do you call them? The, the, the electrodes in the brain, right? The, the stuff that Jose Delgado was doing. This is referenced, uh, you know, by, by Aquino in his document. So I think that that's the, the, the element that's forgotten when people will talk about the, you know, the temple of set or whatever. Uh, if we're discussing psychological warfare and, and the reality, the thin line of reality between movies and, and uh, military tactics and whatnot, I think you have to read that essay that he wrote. Talking about Bond films again, one of your essays in the book is uh, Moonraker and the Breakaway Civilization, you've called it. That was the Bond movie that came out in 1979. Roger Moore was playing Bond at that point. And it's a pretty weak installment in the series, I have to say. But it reminded me that whether it is going off planets or whether they we're talking about Bond villains now, or whether it's the release of some kind of virus, whether it's mind control, as we've been talking about, whether it's uh, stealing nuclear weapons to, to blackmail people, whether it's genetic engineering and modification one of the themes coming out from these sort of the shady organization of spectra and, and the various villains is the idea mm-hmm. is the idea that just that is the breakaway civilization it's the idea that the, the cattle the masses are to be done, done away with or you know if dumbed down effectively you know that there is an elite here and there isn't mm-hmm. there is an agenda uh, and you saw that idea comes out again and again and again uh, you saw that, you know, Elysium, that movie from recent yes. years, which I haven't actually seen. And people say it's not very good, but very powerfully suggesting this. And as you say, oh, this stuff becomes more and more plausible as time goes on. And there's very little updates between some of the core ideas and something like, you know, Moonraker or even some of the deep state stuff in Diamonds Are Forever. It's kind of just like, as you say, it was predicting this kind of right. now, now, now it's here. But you still have this resistance to it, kind of like, well, yeah, I mean, Elysium's just, you know, it's just a movie or whatever. It, it wouldn't really. So I, I do wonder sometimes how does cognitive dissonance, how, you know, how much that breaks down? Because you talked earlier about people waking up to a lot of these things, but then you still see various agendas moving forward, particularly the transhumanist one. I think that, yeah, this, and this is what I was, I've been pondering that very question a lot recently in relationship to, to Trump. Now, I don't really care to debate Trump or anything like that at this point, but you would have, for example, during last year and during the campaign, Trump saying all kinds of wild conspiracy things. Like he would talk about vaccines. He would talk about all this kind of stuff. And you're like, how is he tweeting this stuff and (laughs) saying this stuff openly? It's pretty crazy. Uh, And then, you know, this week things are, are looking pretty bad, at least from the American perspective, because Trump seems to be, Supporting this idea of, uh, oh, Assad's got to go now and this whole neocon line that, that he campaigned against. Not that it's surprising that a politician would go against what they campaigned on. I mean, that's kind of like, unless you're a, a total uh, Stockholm syndrome glutton for punishment. I mean, this is what every politician in all of history has done, right? They go against their campaign promises. So not necessarily surprising, but Rather, I would say unfortunate because I think many of us who were cautiously optimistic were just simply hoping for a change in foreign policy in particular because that was so central to to the globalists, right, is this idea of uh, the destabilization campaigns and regime changes that the CIA has been doing for the last 50 years in 
countless countries. We were hoping for, you know, maybe a little bit of alteration in that program at least, but it's not looking, uh, not looking good on that front. So the point being, well, so how does that relate to people waking up? Well, I, what I think happens is that I think the, the system establishment doesn't really care about people in the short time frame, so to speak, waking up to something, right? Because what's going to happen is even if they wake up to, say, the false paradigm of right and left, they're eventually, I think, going to be corralled back into just some other thing that doesn't matter, right? So maybe you wake up to the false left-right paradigm, and then I'm just using this as an example. I'm not trying to argue with you or anybody who has this view, just as an example. So let's say you wake up to that, and then, then maybe you get involved in libertarianism, right, which is very popular in, in the U.S., and so you're in the libertarian movement and then, you know, you're doing your activism and you're arguing for von Mises and all this kind of crap. And then eventually what happens is you realize that this doesn't do anything. And the whole history of libertarianism was created by the CIA. It's run by guys from the CIA. David Rockefeller loves libertarianism. He wrote a whole uh, master's thesis, if I recall, on von Hayek. So this is all control, too. <laughs> uh, it's not a solution. There may be aspects of libertarianism which are correct in terms of critiquing Marxism or the, the bad economic theories of, you know, hardcore socialism or something. But that doesn't mean that the, the solution is going to be banker plan beta. And that's what libertarianism and the gold center and all that was. You, you read Quigley, he's got two chapters on that where he says, uh, yes, this was the, the bankers back in the 16, 1700s promoted libertarianism and Adam Smith and David Ricardo and all this kind of stuff to destroy the existing uh, political structures in Europe. Mm. So what I'm getting at is that you can't like step back a couple centuries to some system, which is most often the presupposition of the, you know, the, maybe the Ron Paul supporter in America or something like this. And I know all this because I saw it directly, you know, in my twenties, I was a big Ron Paul fan. Yeah. Let's uh, stop the wars and you know, all this kind of stuff. Which I'm, not, I'm, I'm still anti-war, but I'm just saying the system also has these kind of corrals that are already set up for you to be kind of shifted into if you wake up to the left-right paradigm. And I think that what's amazing is that even in Brave New World, Huxley has that there. He has that levels of propaganda for the various strata uh, even in the totally socialistic world government. Uh, and what's amazing is that I think a lot of people have missed this in the novel. Uh, they understand that, oh, okay, yeah, it's a technocracy. It's all about clones and everybody who's the lower mass slug omega class. They don't have genders and they're just kind of these drones and all this stuff. But, but, but what's interesting is that even the alphas in Huxley's system, they believe a bunch of stupid bullshit <laughs> because they've been programmed to it. Right. And it's only at, at the sort of the last, you know, the climax of the novel when John the Savage and uh, his buddies, they kind of solve the whole thing and they figure out, Oh, the whole thing's a scam. It, like the whole thing is a lie, <laughs> right? Like even the, the alphas believe a bunch of bullshit. Uh, and it, well, by the alphas that we could, you know, we could, uh, you know, maybe your Harvard grads and the people that, you know, go into, uh, you know, Harvard law and they set up their law practice and they're, you know, some big Democrat or GOP law firm or something like this, the professional class, right? What we might call quote, the alphas, maybe they're making 
one, two million a year. Uh, they all believe in the system. They're still convinced of the bullshit, right? I mean, you go read people who write for the CFR, which I do this actually quite frequently. I'll go read foreign policy articles. I'll read CFR articles. And you see that this is supposed to be the cream of the crop, you know, the smartest people. They, they actually believe a lot of the bullshit. Like they believe the war on terror right, is real. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Now, I think at the higher, higher levels, you know, you get like to the Kissingers and the Brzezinski's. I think these people realize that this is a lot of bullshit. And, then, you know, this is largely foisted by conology. Uh, and as you said earlier, like terror theater and all that kind of stuff, because uh, Brzezinski. Uh, and I think that I was just reading one of his key quotes uh, yesterday. You know, he said back in 1973 in between two ages. He said the key to all of this is understanding that the long-term goal is technocracy. And it doesn't matter what happens within the short span, like within these theatrical elections of Trump and Clinton and all this kind of stuff. I mean, I'm not saying it totally doesn't matter because you might get some shifts in policy. Maybe the TTP doesn't go through. Maybe Obamacare doesn't happen, this kind of stuff. But, but, Ultimately, that's not that big of a deal, I don't think, to the globalists, because they're looking at it in 50 and 100 year spans. And I mean, come on, is anybody really even going to be knowing about Obamacare in 50 years? Probably not. Right. What are they going to be dealing with in 50 years? They're going to be dealing with what Brzezinski talked about, technocracy. That's what's going to be on the table. This meantime bullshit doesn't matter. And uh, I guess that's just been hammered home to me recently. And I think that's the point that, that you're making there is like, well, wh what does it mean for people who wake up and are still uh, caught in another level of, of dialectics, right? And I mean, it is. It's not just 2D chess. It's not just 3D chess. It can also be 4, 5, 6D chess. Yeah, you, I'd love to have been a fly on the wall uh, in the 48 hours or so after Trump won the election, because I genuinely believe that that, and also Brexit, by the way, I see these events as mm -hmm. very, very closely linked. Brexit being when the yes. United Kingdom recently voted to depart the European Union. I believe these were genuinely asymmetrical events that went against what was intended, right. what was intended to happen. And the reason I say I'd love to be in a fly in the wall in the Trump camp is because at what point was he sat down and, and had a talk with, has that happened yet? And I remember clearly Jesse Ventura, just linking us back to the movies, you know, the, the guy. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, he, he, he became a state governor, and we know him from films like Predator, and mm -hmm. um, he's the guy with the tash who, I'm a goddamn sexual Tyrannosaurus, you know, that guy. <laughs> and um, Well, you know, Greg, one of the things I learned when I became governor <laughs> was that the CIA briefs you. They take you in a basement, sit you down with about 12 other people. You had no idea. They're all CIA, and they say, Jesse, do you remember John F. Kennedy? <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. You know, well, this is exactly, people are wondering where that speech is coming from. He recalls when he was elected state governor. I can't remember which state now. But uh, he was sat down. By some guys, some suits, you know, guys talking into their sleeves showed up in a black car and they sat him down and they, you know, wanted to find out where he was coming from. They wanted to get to know him. And I think this may be what was right. ha happening with Trump now. They're kind of like, we think we know this guy, but we need to know what he's thinking because this is a wild card 
And uh, you could argue that the you know, people who can't be brought under control, if not on side, they go the way of uh, JFK. I think that what they <clears throat> what they'll do is they'll look for any possible means to uh, to reel you in, and they can do that eventually. So uh, even if they so if they don't buy you, I think that uh, there's a great talk that. Uh, interview that somebody uh, who did it. It was a, uh, I think it was Tim Kelly interviewed the uh, uh, George Webb, Steve Webb, George Webb. I forget his name, but he's the guy who's made all these videos about uh, the Clinton Foundation and the disappearance of this uh, Eric Braverman character. And anyway, they did a really good interview where they discussed the the methods of blackmail. Uh, so there's all these different tricks and this is, goes back to kind of the trade craft and the intelligence espionage type stuff that we talked about earlier. Uh, what, what the establishment just basically looks for any, any way that they can, you know, get the dirt, right? So if it's not pictures of you with whores or pictures of you with maybe underage kids or something like this, then they'll move on to something else like, you know, wiretapping Trump Tower and <laughs> seeing if they can get some dirt. I mean, this is the standard fair stuff that the establishment has done forever. Like, I mean, you even go back to like, uh, if you watch Downton Abbey, I don't know. I mean, in the U S it was actually very, probably more popular in the U S than it was in the UK. I don't know, but a lot of people in America watched Downton Abbey and they, they were really into it. And, uh, I had a buddy who I wasn't going to, I thought it was like, this is some chick thing. I'm not watching this. Well, I had a friend who really smart, English lit guy who was like, Oh, you need to watch this. And the only reason that I found that relevant, the reason I watched it was because what, one of the things you notice is that the, the prevalence of the gossip. So like the servants will learn all the deets, you know, all the details on the, uh, the nobility in the story. And if the nobility pisses one of the servants off, well, they just leak the gossip, right? And this can actually cause quite a bit of scandal. Now, why do I say that? Well, because that's kind of relevant to what we're talking about with uh, what the way the establishment works. The establishment will try to find out any kind of dirt, whatever they can, blackmail you. If they can't blackmail you, they'll move to, you know, wiretapping you, surveilling you, finding dirt that way, leaking stories to the press and so forth and so on. And this is just how the whole giant parasitical hideous system works, right? I mean, I know that's probably cliche. It sounds like, oh, yeah, well, everybody knows this. But actually, that is how it works. And that's what is coming out now. Again, WikiLeaks, this is what we're seeing with the wiretapping of Trump Tower and all this. All of this was literally what was going down. And it's exactly what Jesse Ventura was talking about. You're absolutely right. I, I can't believe. I'm glad you remember that. I, I'd forgotten that story. Um, but if you remember what he says in the the full version of the story is that he says, I was actually taken to a meeting. He's guys in suits showed up and they were like, Hey, we want you to come, uh, come have a little meeting and, you know, it'll be a, a fun little coffee <laughs> gathering. And he says he went to like the basement of some building and he said, there was all these people from the community in there, like people that you would not expect, you know, like housewives and then, a, you know, maybe some local businesswoman and, some guy at the Rotary Club or something like this, right? And there's 10 or 20 of them in there. And he's, you know, they sit down and he says, oh, well, we are all of the uh, local central intelligence workers. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's that's at least how Jesse tells the story. I have no idea, you know, what's true or false in that. But I could certainly believe that. 
Yeah, that's so reminiscent, isn't it? Of like, it remi- you know, they, there's a bunch of movies that are like that. You know, it's kind of almost like an invasion yeah. of the body snatchers type scenario. Do you remember V, the um, the TV series? Oh yeah, you, you know, and the kind of role or they live from uh, John Carpenter. You know, this mm-hmm. idea that they're the people around you are may not be all that they appear to be. They may be much more. They may be much less. But, uh, you know, this is an ultra uh, uh, go back to Queen Elizabeth. You know, Elizabeth was known for her vast spy network. She had spies everywhere. And you'll see this come up in movies and in fiction as well, where uh, even kids uh, are are paid to spy. I mean, how many times I I can't off the top of my head? I'm not I can't think of one, but there's plenty of movies where (laughs) like even, you know, like the little uh, sort of peasant brat kids that are running around the street are paid to be spies. Uh, and that's it's very easy to to get those people uh, because they don't have any other means, you know, to 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 live. Right? I mean, they're destitute, right? So obviously, they're going to spy. Well, yeah, I mean, a lot of the things that they use to compromise people or bring them down, if necessary, involve sex, doesn't it? It just seems to be like, yeah. a, you know, it's kind of a primal urge, isn't it? One, a, a sort of a weakness that can be exploited as a weakness. But make no mistake about it. I mean, it's so easy to do. If someone, if they, quote unquote, had a problem with you or me, it would be so simple, particularly as we are people with limited power and limited influence. Uh, you know, we don't necessarily have friends in high places. I don't know about you, but you know what I mean? It's so uh, all they would have to do is to produce a laptop computer from somewhere, put some child pornography on there, start to shout about it, and that's it. You're going away. Uh, no one will have anything to do with you again. Friends, family are going to disown you. Uh, you can be banged up for as long as they basically like, and your reputation is ruined. And hopefully, hopefully, as far as the authorities are concerned, you would just do the decent thing and kill yourself. End of, <laughs> you know, end of problem. Do you know what I mean? So it's super, super easy. Um, to yeah, do. there's a lot of different ways too, and that's that's the scary part. There's the uh, well, I think also with this this fake news trend is another way that they're going after people who are you know putting out alternative information. All they all they're going to do is basically just you know put into the browsers things like oh this this is a fake news website. You know what I mean? And then sort of ban it, shadow ban it, ghost banning. They've already been doing all this for for a long time now. And uh, so, I mean, that's not the same thing as blackmail, obviously, but but I think what they're going to start doing is that type of stuff for alternative information. Um, they're, they're even, you know, making lists of blacklisted sites and stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, the, 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 this is the typical means and methods of the establishment. And again, it always goes back to that kind of entrapment type stuff. I remember reading a, uh, it was a police officer wrote this uh a book i think it was some years ago but uh he basically wrote four people who were activists this is back when i used to do more activism type stuff but he'd, he'd written a book on activism and entrapment and all the means and methods of the police and what they're going to do to try to disrupt you and all this kind of stuff and w- what was funny was that j- just how it's the exact same stuff that you know, you have with sex espionage and entrapment, you know, all, all those kinds of 
tales that you get in in spy stories uh, with sex workers and sex kittens and all this kind of stuff. It's all exactly the same stuff. <laughs> like it's the it's the same thing. Is what I, and I, I know we said that earlier, but you know I was just thinking about how useful if we remember the stories that we've if, that have come out like the Anna Chapman story and I'm not sure I believe a whole lot of that that's probably a lot of theatrical bullshit but if you remember the Heidi Fleiss stuff right and this ties into Hollywood uh, I think that's how like you could see how to if you're an intelligence agency that a lot of the um the sex blackmail stuff that the, the whole, you, you want to have connections to the madams is what I'm trying to say to, to make it simple. <laughs> right. And, and I believe it came out that that's what was going on with uh, some of the Savile UK type stuff was that that MI five or somebody had a lot of these guest houses, quote unquote, uh, tapped and all this kind of stuff. Hasn't this been coming out for a long time with the UK politicians? Yeah, yeah, well, absolutely. Absolutely, it has. Well, yeah, and I think a lot of the stuff like Bohemian Grove, for example, which some people still dispute, uh, you know, you can get people involved in ways like that. It's seen as like, as you say, oh, come along to our little meeting sort of thing. It's a fraternal society, blah, blah, blah. And before very long, you can find yourself in a position there. Well, I don't actually want to know any, anyone to know about this. Initially, perhaps because you think you've been given the keys to the executive washroom and you don't want to let anyone else share them, you know, there's some advantage for you here. Yeah. yeah. And I remember, I mean, most of the men in my family all now passed on were Masons. And mm-hmm. uh, I remember my uncle talking about it because he, he was um you know, the sort of person that would, you know, brag. And uh, I remember him talking about, you know, meeting celebrities at these Masonic meetings, you know, ones that you would travel to other countries for. Oh wow! And it was, uh, you know, not sort of people you'd normally bump into. And I remember mm-hmm. my, my grandfather, someone I have immense admiration and respect for, and he wouldn't, he wouldn't talk about the Masonic, local Masonic lodge that he went to. And I didn't ask him about it very much because I, I could tell from, I knew him well. So when it did come up, and he, I can't remember what form of words he used, but it was like, I'm, I'm not going to talk about that. You know, just leave it. Uh, and so I did. And so I think that's definitely. There's another way of the people joining these organizations and it's one thing leads to another reminds us of eyes wide shut again, doesn't it? You know, that you're kind of, you're in yeah. now, you're in now, there's no getting out. Well, there's this, this uh, great book, Builders of Empire, Freemasons and British Imperialism. That was, it's more of an academic book, but, uh, the, uh, the woman that wrote that, that was kind of her thesis was just that this is basically an international surveillance secret network that you know is in the service of the British Empire. Uh, it may not have as important a role nowadays as it did. I mean, I'm not saying it's not important, but you know, her, her book is written on the period of uh, 1717 to 1927. So certainly Freemasonry had a, a much, I would argue much more important role then perhaps than it does now. Uh, because I mean, I'm not saying that, human or human to human intelligence doesn't matter. I mean, that was kind of one of the points of uh, Skyfall was that, oh, we still got to do the old old school uh, British intelligence spying. We can't just rely on the tech geeks. But, uh, you know, the last few Bilderberg meetings have been about the handing of the baton, you know, from David Rockefeller and these characters over to the uh, to the tech people. All right. And so you had all these these tech people. Uh, Regina Dugan, who's the, I mentioned earlier, you've got people from uh, DARPA who go to Google and then they go to Bilderberg. 
And uh, what's she doing there while she's at uh, Bilderberg saying, oh, it's going to be so great because now uh, everything will be bodily modification, body mods, uh, and implantable microchips. That's literally what she said at, uh, I think it was two Bilderbergs ago. But anyway, the, the focus of the last two Bilderbergs was completely on technocracy, uh, as far as we know what's come out about those and they've you've become more public now that they've been given attention. It's not really a secret confab like it used to be. It's a little more public now, but anyway, point of all that is just to say that, uh, you know, there is still the relevance of the human to human spying type stuff, but it does seem to be even in that realm, you know, transitioning over again, just almost totally dominated by, by the uh, the tech stuff, uh, and then I mean that's where we're going. Like everything's going to the the tech realm. You know, Bertrand Russell talked about this a long time ago, and he said that yeah, eventually you're not even going to have cash. You're going to just have the credits <laughs> that the world government gives you, uh, and if you don't spend your allotted credits that week, you know they they go away. Uh, and this is I think what we're being set up with through a lot of the electronic currencies. I'm not saying that everybody into Bitcoin's bad. I'm not making judgments on you. I'm just saying that that can also be a preparatory phase for, you know, having a chip in your hand that you swipe and, you know, this deducts your, your weekly credits, right? So that you can, you know, go get your vegan, <laughs> your vegan bar at your, uh, while you're living inside a giant Target. I'm not joking, by the way. They're actually making giant Target apartment complexes where you live. Oh, yeah. yeah. This is this is now getting into, like, Soylent Green territory, isn't it? You know, you got this, yes. you know, you, you, will eat, you will eat this thick paste. Well, yeah, what is it, though? It is green. Yeah, but, <laughs> <laughs> you know. And, 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 Soylent Green is made from people. Excellent. Uh, you're Charlton. Where, where Another is Charlton. I was trying to do my Charlton again. Where is he now? And also... um the idea of uh, George Lucas, you know, his THX one one three eight, you know, that kind of a dystopian view of the future. But I mean, Bill Gates, for example, the Microsoft guy, who doesn't know him now. now I don't think for I don't know much about his background, but I don't think he was ever groomed for insidership. I think he just started something and it snowballed. He was in the no, right, he was in the no, right. No, no. No, no, I had to, to disagree with you there. Okay, well, let me just say then, and you can fill us in on this because uh, I, I, I wouldn't. Uh, this is obviously something I don't know about. Bill Gates. Uh, Steve Jobs, Elon Musk, these types of people, the Facebook and Google people that you mentioned as well. If anyone thinks whether, no matter what their background, at some point, if they were outsiders, if anyone thinks that they weren't taken to one side along the lines that we mentioned with Jesse Ventura, I think it's very naive, right. very naive to imagine that they're just allowed to do their own thing. Yeah, absolutely. If we've had some conversations about this on some other podcasts I've been on, and they they were we were theorizing on this very point, and uh, my view is that. That you you can have people who are recruited into certain roles and groomed and prepped for them over time, and it doesn't really matter what class they come from ultimately. So it's not totally a class structure in the sense of you know the older British class structure or Hindu caste system or anything like that, because uh, you know as some writers say, you've got bloods in the brains, right? So you do have like these older families that are what you might call maybe bloodline families or something like that or old money. Right. But, but you also have the more technocrat scientific minded individuals of like a Brzezinski or Alvin Toffler or these kinds of characters. And so they would be like the brains, right? So you've got old money, Rothschild's bloods, and then you've got the brains like the Kissingers and the Brzezinski's and the Tofflers and 
so forth and so on. Um, and then because of everything kind of shifting into the tech dominance and, and the coming global AI grid Internet of Things, these kinds of people are a lot more important uh, than, you know, some old family that has a bunch of money. Uh, not saying that those old families don't matter. I'm just saying that, you know, if, if you are building the AI grid, you're a lot more important <laughs> than, you know, some old bitchy uh, baroness uh, in a castle or something. Yeah, like and this. some of these some of these so-called elites are actually pretty stupid. Not yeah. talking about inbreeding now, but they're not the sharpest tools in the box. You've only got to look at the British royals. Some of the, uh, you know, the, the, not the ones who've mm. married into the family, but some of the others. If we were, if we were in a level playing field, like we talked last time about, uh, these survival shows, you know, you're pitting one person against another. The royal, <laughs> the royal prince is going down. Let's put it like that. Well, it was in the case, in the case of Gates, if I recall, his dad helped basically set up, uh, Planned Parenthood. Now, whatever your views of, uh, women's reproduction or whatever, the, Modus operandi behind Planned Parenthood is absolutely 100% about depopulation. So uh, Gates' dad was, if I recall, some kind of high level, like he got some military type status. Uh, I don't think he was a general or anything like that, but I'm just going from memory here. But he was impor- important in the deep state military apparatus and then uh, played some important role in Planned Parenthood and the um, the rise and creation uh, and, and expansion of Planned Parenthood. Uh, and so Bill Gates comes from this kind of military tech family that is obsessed with population control. So he was already groomed for that stuff. Um, so I'm not sure I buy these stories. Like, you know, if you remember Social Network is a good example, that movie that came out. And the movie gives this presentation like, uh, oh, this is just nerds in their basement slapping away at keyboards and algorithms and you know, coming up with who's got the coolest idea and this kind of stuff. And can you, could you sell this in Silicon Valley? I mean, there might be an element of truth to that, but even social network gives you this little hint with the scene where he gets like this, this secret funding from these people. It's kind of brief if I were, it's been some years since I watched that movie, but there's like a brief scene where, you know, these, he meets with these kind of shady backdoor dark room, people in suits and they, they give him some of the front money. Now in reality, that is InQtel and InQtel was a CIA front company that uh, helped start both Google and Facebook. So once again, we see the fingers of the deep state <laughs> directly involved uh, in the, the big tech stuff. So I would argue that, yeah, I mean, I'm not saying that Bill Gates is a CIA stooge. I think that somebody of that level is way above the CIA. I mean, the CIA people are, you know, you know, uh, Bill Gates has a lot more power than Robert Bayer. Okay. <laughs> That's what I'm trying to say. Um, and so likewise, you know, when you look at even some of these characters and even some of the billionaires though, like an Elon Musk or Peter Thiel, uh, if you look at, uh, some of the, the front companies of the CIA, like Palantir, this is a Peter Thiel company. So, Again, I, there's there's a neck and neck sort of de, you talk about inbreeding, like the inbreeding between the the CIA and these big tech companies is uh, heavily inbred. It's very incestuous. So 
I'm speaking of just of the relationship. I'm not saying Bill Gates is inbred. I'm, you know, you know what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, totally. Well, in some ways, then, uh, as as drab a Bond villain as Bill Gates would make, in some ways, you you can see the equivalent. You know, these kind of you know yeah. me- me- megalomaniacs, if not in terms of their personal ego, but certainly in terms of their uh, their reach. You know, inter- a planetary reach and the the power to affect everyone's lives uh, certainly echoes some of the, the the Bond villains. It's just you know, Bill Gates doesn't live in a hollowed-out volcano, as far as I know. Uh, I believe he... Actually, if I recall, he was he was famous for having this giant complex that was a, a smart house, if you're familiar with the ideas of a smart house, mm-hmm. uh, which is actually the model for what will be the smart city, which the smart cities are being introduced now. They're in the process of uh, creating the giant AI grids that will, uh, there are test cities are like Singapore and Rio that are being converted literally into smart cities. So that means everything in this city, Oh, it's going to be so convenient that, uh, you know, anywhere you go in the city, this, the city will recognize you and there'll be free internet and you can, uh, you know, type into your iWatch, you know, your latte order ahead of time. This is all nonsense. Of course, because the whole thing is just a giant prison complex, right? So you're actually going to be living in a little coffin-sized thing above a target, literally. Uh, and Watson is going to watch you from the center of the city. This is exactly what's in Zardoz and, and in uh, Logan's Run. Yeah, exactly. It very much so. And I would throw in um, THX one one three eight again because that's virtually yes. the definition. I mean, that's even located underground. That's on. Oh like, yeah, right, right. That's the very definition of a smart city. Okay, well, Jay, um, despite the promises that I made last time, we haven't actually got around to properly discussing Zardoz and Logan Drum and other related movies. Um, we are actually going to turn this into a three-part series, and we will definitely get to those movies next time. In fact, we'll start with those. Until then, tell people about your website, the book that we mentioned at the top of the show, and just anything else you want to put out there. Sure, uh, jaysanalysis.com. I think there's uh, 1,100 posts there, so there's quite a bit of content uh, over the last six or seven years that you can dive into, a whole bunch of archives, 120 film reviews, uh, five or 600 other articles that I've written on various topics, philosophy, literature, history, geopolitics, comparative religion, the esoteric, all of that is there, and uh, even some goofy humorous stuff. I just wrote a really, really preposterous uh, a joke analysis of La La Land, this the big Oscar winner this year, and uh, and yet even still, it doesn't matter how ridiculous I make these, some people will still think that they're serious. <laughs> Most of them are, but even what, but I, I write these really dumb ones, uh, people take them serious. But anyway, all kinds of stuff there at the site, and uh, there's tabs you can order the book inside the U.S. and outside the U.S. signed. Um, I know it's a little a little bit pricey than Amazon. But that's why Amazon undercuts the authors and tries to sell a book for $10 and the author makes like 50 cents or a dollar. And then if you get it directly from me, you know, it's a lot better for the author. So you can get a signed copy directly from me. And then I also do lectures and talks and analyses of you know big global stories or geopolitics or history or philosophy, Aristotle, Plato, I do talks on all these topics esoteric stuff and you can find all that at jaysanalysis.com cool okay well until next time and part three third and final part thanks a lot jay for joining us again on legalizefreedom.com thank you greg
Something hides in the heart To hurt 